One of the unique things about the Gospel of John is so much, so much of it, a good bit of it, is dedicated to the last week of ministry in the life of Jesus. Uh, in other words, John gives us far more details about these things than anyone else does, and that was one of the reasons that I chose this book, and, you know, we're working our way toward a Resurrection Sunday uh, coming up shortly. Uh, But one of the things I would say this morning that, you know, John is, it's a very special book. And one of the things about it is this, is even though it doesn't include all the events that you find in the other Gospels, the things that it does include, he gives us far more details. And, and what we're going to be doing this morning is looking more, perhaps, at some of the details of the crucifixion of Christ uh, than maybe we've done in the past, okay? So what we're going to be doing is looking at the crucifixion of Christ uh, in John chapter 19, uh, beginning with uh, verse 16. We'll go back to there. So he delivered him uh, over to them to be crucified. This is this Pilate. Pilate's the one that's done this. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called, called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on the, uh, either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek so that everyone could understand what it said. So the chief priests of the Jews, that's not in the Bible, by the way. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose uh, it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife, Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, which we're going to talk about in two weeks. Uh, I'm not going to be here next week, by the way. Mike's going to be preaching, so be praying for him this week as he gets ready uh, to do that. But again, how many times in your lifetime have you thought about, have you contemplated all of these events that are being described here in the Gospel of John? And I just want to challenge us with the idea this morning that uh, as many times as we study these things, there is always more to know. There's always deeper ground to go to. And that's my heart this morning, is that we will find some of that deeper ground. So when you leave here this morning, you won't be just saying, well, there was just another sermon on the cross that I hear every Easter or right before Easter time.
One of the things that I want to bring to our thought this morning is the fact that God didn't only give us the Gospel of John, he gave us three other Gospels. Uh, And even though they all cover very similar ground when it comes to certain things, they all give us little tidbits and details that we don't get in the other ones necessarily. I mean, a lot of a lot of the material is is common to all of them, but 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 again, the details vary. And so, one of the things that we always do when we preach on this sort of thing is we glean from all of the other gospels, you know, and try to, to try to build a bigger picture of everything that's going on by using all the details that uh, that the Bible actually gives to us. John writes, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He doesn't really give us the details of everything that took place between uh, the fortress Antonia, where he was, where his judgment seat was, uh, all the way to Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. But he does say this, that they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. Just remember the condition that Jesus is in at this point. He's been through the scourging, this unbelievable torture that he suffered already. And I want to remind you this morning that there were, it was not unusual for people to succumb to, to scourging uh, and dying from, as a consequence of it, maybe from complications that resulted from it and that sort of thing. But massive loss of blood and, and that sort of thing. John tells us that he was bearing his cross. Now, I can remember, you know, seeing pictures all the way through my early years and even in more recent years of Jesus, you know, trucking down the Villa de la Rosa and uh, with uh, this cross, you know, on his back and, uh, and, and, and so weighty that he is basically dragging. He's holding the part where the cross beam is and he's dragging the rest of it. Because we understand this, that, that a, a piece of wood that big, no matter what kind of wood it happened to be, because some wood's lighter and some wood's heavier, I would imagine that the wood that was used for the crosses was somewhat on the heavier side. Because they used these things over and over again. It wasn't a one-time deal. They used the same crosses over and over again. But the Romans had, uh, crucifixion had existed for much, much of history long before the Romans used it. Greeks did to some degree and that sort of thing. So I want you to understand that crucifixion was not unique to the Romans. But at the same time, the Romans had kind of perfected it. Because what they wanted to do was this, was maximize the suffering and the anguish of the person being crucified and, 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 and cause it to be a lingering, enduring kind of suffer that went on, or suffering that went on for some time. 
It was not intention, the intention of the executioners when someone's crucified for them to die very rapidly. It was a deadly process, and eventually the person would die from suffocation, basically. Because they had to lift themselves up. Every time they wanted to take a breath, they had to push up with their feet so they could fill their lungs. And eventually they would just die basically from blood loss to some degree and at the same time suffocation. How far it actually was from the Fortress Antonia and Golgotha, we're not too sure. Uh, estimates are around close to half a mile. So we're talking about Jesus going a pretty distance, not just a few hundred yards or a few hundred feet. But the reality is this is, uh, you know, when we look at the historical records of the manner in which the Romans crucified people, that sort of thing, they took the post, basically, and they left them permanently in the ground. So probably what was going on here was Jesus was carrying only the crossbeam. And I would say to you this, probably it would be, it would be absolutely impossible for anybody to carry a whole cross all by themselves because you're talking about three, four hundred pounds, I would imagine. Uh, but the crossbeam was heavy in itself. Now, there are some amazing traditions regarding the cross that have been They've come along during the history of the church and people have propagated stories and, and that sort of thing about the cross and, and all of that. There was a monk, a Roman Catholic monk, Lambertus, uh, in the 12th century that began to propagate this, uh, this, this idea that he had, in there, and I'm not even sure how he supposedly came by this information, but he propagated this idea that the cross itself was made from a twig that had been taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all the way back in the Garden of Eden and planted, and it grew into a tree, and ultimately it was used to, as the wood for the cross. There's another tradition that says that the cross was constructed of three different types of wood from three different types of trees. And each one of those represented a particular thing. Now let me just say this, neither one of those are biblical ideas. Uh, there's also people who believe that there are parts of the cross that exist in the world today. You can go to Greece, and uh, supposedly the largest fragment of the cross that's left uh, is sitting in a monastery on Mount Athos. Anybody ever been there? I was in Greece years ago, and I didn't even hear about this. Maybe I would have gone if I had. Uh, but we don't, really, we don't really know the history of the cross for certain. The Bible doesn't speak anything to it. You know, this is the end of it. It mentions a cross here. That's the end of it. So anything that comes to us 
from outside the Bible is just what people say. And so, unfortunately, there have been a lot of things that really seem to be nonsensical that have been propagated by people down through the ages. But I would say this, that it's entirely possible that there may be some fragments left of the cross in the world today. Maybe just little teeny tiny slivers or something like that. But we do know that wood rots, right? Especially when it's exposed to the elements and that sort of thing. But if God wanted to preserve it all this time, could he? Yes. But let me tell you, I would say it would be very unlikely that God would do this. You know why? Because people, what people will do is take those things and they make them into idols. I mean, there's a sense in which Roman Catholicism and some of the other variations of Christianity have, have made the crucifix into an image which, in essence, is, is worshipped. There really is no justification for that in Scripture. One of the things that I was thinking about was this because Golgotha was raised up and the temple was raised up on the temple mount that it's very likely that Jesus could actually see the temple from the cross. It's about a third of a mile away or whatever and if you remember Jesus going up on Mount Olivet which was probably further away from the temple than where Christ was now that they were looking down upon Olivet. Uh, or down on the temple from Olivet, and that's when we had the Olivet Discourse. Well, I'm going to take us through kind of the steps. This is a little bit bone-chilling as far as I'm concerned. And I wouldn't do this. I didn't think that we would get some value out of it. But I want you to close your eyes this morning. And the first thing I want you to see is Jesus standing there before Pilate. And then this beam being hosted onto Jesus' back. And I want you to see him treading through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to Golgotha. And hear the crowd around him, many of them cheering for his crucifixion. We know that at this time many of his people were very quiet they were shell-shocked. They could not believe what was happening, and they did not know what to say. They did not know how to respond to it. And they're afraid. Now picture Jesus, once they get... to Golgotha, the place of the skull. The beam is laid down on the ground. And he's, he's either forced or he willingly, and I would say willingly, 
laid down on it and stretched out his arms. Now the soldiers take six inch iron nails and they pierce his wrist. At this point, they were used to people screaming out in horrendous, unbelievable, undescribable pain. But Jesus lays there and allows them to do what they're doing. No resistance. In silence. Now open your eyes. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled in all of these things that are transpiring. These people who were used to doing these crucifixions were very used to people screaming in anguish at this point. Can you imagine how unsettling it would be for them? Because they understood the horrendous pain they just put this man in. It had to speak to them in a very mighty way that there was no screaming, there was no crying out. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, I've read this before, and I was curious, because I don't know much about sheep. Some of you probably know a little bit about sheep. I doubt anybody here knows a whole lot about sheep. But this passage has always kind of baffled me, because I, you know, when I think about sheep, I think about bleeding. <laughs> lambs, you think about bleeding lambs. Uh, so I was curious. I could not think for a minute that sheep would be silent when they were being shears. So I got on the internet the other day. And I watched several videos of sheep being sheared. And let me tell you something. I didn't hear one of them do a single bah. Nothing. They almost looked like they were enjoying it. But again, I think the thing we need to glean from it has unsettling this would be for the people that were watching this who had experienced this before. It was nothing like they had ever seen. They had to be thinking at that point that there's something different going on here. This is something different about this guy. We don't know, but some of those very people that drove those nails could have come to faith in Christ as a result of what they experienced with witnessed in all of this. Just remember this, that his feet are also nailed to the cross. You know, sometimes they put a little step thing there so the person could, could push themselves up because 
people died from crucifixion basically by asphyxiation because they were in a position where they had to push themselves up with their legs every time they needed to take a breath. Other than that, they could not breathe. And so it was just a matter of time before their legs became so weakened that they were no longer able to push themselves up to gasp for air. And sometimes you'll see that there was a little foot piece there, and on some crosses there were, but we have no reason to believe that or to even to notice that. And that is, that there's a good chance that Jesus, the only thing holding him up were the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet. Nothing else. Sometimes you see pictures of a little seat there for people to sit on. And they did that on occasion. But... We have no reason to come to that conclusion. Again, the executioners are used to victims crying for mercy, pleading for mercy. Jesus speaks. It's not what they expect to hear. They only hear him pray for them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. A plea for mercy for his executioners. You need to understand that as I'm going through here, I'm, I'm bringing some things out of John, but I'm also drawing on the other Gospels to give us a little bit more details. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Some of the Gospels say myrrh, some say gall, possibly both. Gall was a poison. that was intended to speed up the death of the person. Myrrh was used uh, as a perfume, but also in embalming fluids. Had a pleasant odor to it to overcome the odor of death. We've all smelled that odor. Dead animals on the road. That sort of thing. So there's a, probably the likelihood that the gall was for the benefit of the person that was on the cross. It would speed up their death. They were, they were basically drinking poison and they knew it to speed the process up. The myrrh, on the other hand, would have been for the benefit of those around that the smell of death would not be so great. Jesus was crucified naked to add to his humiliation. 
How do we know this? We know this because his executioners cast lots to divide his clothes. It was a common thing for them to do that. Now, there may be a few exhibitionists in here, but I don't imagine there are too many. Most of us don't like for other people to see us without our clothes on. So just something else to add to the humiliation of Christ. The executioners, they cast lots to divide his clothes. Really? We look upon that, you know, and we all have closets full of clothes and chester drawers full of clothes and we got clothes coming out the yin-yang and every now and then we get tired of holding on to stuff for years and we'll send it to the Annie Johnson Center or somewhere. You and I have lost, any sense, the real value of clothing. Those of us who've been to Uganda, Dick and Barb and Walter and Lori and I, we understand that that clothing in some places is one of the most precious things that you can possibly have. There are many people in the world today that will walk around completely naked, not by choice, but simply because they are so poor that they cannot afford to buy one stitch of clothing. The purpose of it was to add to the humiliation of the person being crucified. Now we understand that this happened for a particular reason, and that is because we read Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That many of these things that are taking place in regard to Jesus, are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. Too many to begin to believe that it was just some coincidence. As many people might think. We know from the other Gospels that two thieves were crucified with him, one on one the right and the other on the left. And we know that those two people represent two factions of mankind. One of them ridiculed him saying, aren't you the Christ? Basically, if you are, save yourself, and by the way, save us too. Luke 23, 39. The other one defended Jesus. We are punished justly, for we are getting all that our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he looked at Jesus and he said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Two factions of mankind represented in those two people. Those who do not know Jesus, those who don't want to know Jesus, don't care anything about Jesus, those who in fact ridicule Jesus. And those who know him and they love him and they defend him.
Why was it necessary for Jesus to die in such a manner? It was because the Lord himself had long before proclaimed it. In other words, everything that's being is unfolding here is, is unfolding because God had long since determined that it would every detail. Jesus knew this when he came. It wasn't that he became incarnate and then later on found out where the road was going to lead him. He knew this before he came into the world, that this is where it would come. Scripture tells us that Jesus would be lifted up. It was necessary that he die, but not just died, but it was necessary that he die by crucifixion. It wasn't Pilate, it wasn't the Romans that determined turned this, it was God himself. And Jesus, the Son of God, in agreement with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Remember for Numbers, you had the people of God that come out of, out of Egypt and they, would just, they just loved the Lord and they were always faithful and they did everything he told them to, right? Rebellious. Over and over again. Gripers and complainers. They had plenty to eat. They didn't like what was on the menu. Have you ever been there? Let me just read a little story from Numbers. Uh, from Mount Hor, uh, is, uh, they, that is Israel, set out by way of the Red Sea to go around Edom, and the people be became impatient and spoke against Moses. Wow. How dare they? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. So many died, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord, and you pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. Now tell me that's not a depiction of the cross. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole. And if a, a, per, a serpent bit anyone, he would look upon, up at the bronze serpent and live. The cross. In Exodus. Not just the death of Jesus, but the means. Not Clearly, but certainly there is enough there, and the New Testament encourages us in this direction to understand that that was a depiction of what was coming. Isaiah chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be, guess what? High and what? Lifted up. And we understand that that means more than the cross because there's a sense in which it, that, that the cross is a depiction of Christ being far greater 
being lifted up as he was into the heaven, right? I mean, there's a sense now when you and I, you know, these people looked upon Christ as he was up, raised up on the cross. You and I look to heaven. We look up because that's where Christ is now. Isaiah chapter 53, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So shall he sprinkle many nations. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death, although he had, not, had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Understand that. The will of God the Father to crush Christ. The will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes a, gu a guilt offering he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We've alluded to this over the last weeks, and that is this. It's a time for us to remember. You know, it's easy for us to look at the religious leaders here of, uh, of Israel and be angry with them. It's their fault this all happened. Uh, it's easy for us to shift the blame to a pilot because he finally just gave in to the religious leaders even though he didn't necessarily desire to do what was to be done. They manipulated him into it and he hated them even more for it. They in essence put him between a rock and a hard place.
my friends, this is our doing. This is my doing. It's one thing to believe that Jesus died in a general sort of way, generally for anybody and everybody. It's another thing when you are true to what the scriptures teach, and that is that he died for a specific group of people called the elect. how good we are at blame shifting when it comes to just about everything. We can always explain away why something is not really my fault. Maybe I did this or the other, but let me give you the reasons why I did what I did. And when I do that, then you're going to absolve me of any guilt that might be associated with it. I can explain it away. But I hope everyone in this room can say this. It was my sin that killed Jesus. I did it. If you can't, you don't know your sin. You don't understand your sin. You don't know what a dirty, rotten scoundrel you really, truly are. But I want to remind us this morning, if Jesus Christ came into this world, the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, and lived his life of 33 years, not an easy life, if he did it for Kathy Gruber only, he still would have had to do everything that he did. The same thing is true for every one of us. Our sin alone was sufficient demand to demand that the only sacrifice fit to save us was the sacrifice of the Son of God. But don't stop there. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're guilty of the blood of our Savior. But that's not the end of the story. If you truly believe God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has completely forgiven you for every single sin you ever committed, including the death of Christ. What a Savior. Does He love you? Does He want you? Look at this, and it's unbelievable. If you're not amazed, there's something wrong with you. If you're not amazed every time you consider these things, you are 
not where you need to be. Because I know some of you probably don't feel like you're all that loved by people. Maybe not so much by family. Maybe not so much by the people around you. But let me tell you something. Don't doubt the love of Christ for you. Because he's proven it. In a way that we cannot deny it.